You're listening to the Local Open Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath. Today's guest is Rory Kelly. She lives on Long Island, New York, and was firmly embedded in the music scene in the Big Apple, New York City, playing several nights a week and earning a fine living doing so. She hosts a regular show on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch called Monday Night Muses with Rory Kelly. It streams live, you guessed it, on Mondays. Rory has four songs to share from her upcoming album release entitled Shadow Work, along with the very interesting backstories to each. Stay with us as we talk with Rory Kelly. And we want to welcome Rory Kelly. How are you doing, Rory? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. This is so fun. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, uh, Taryn LaRange, who was our episode number nine uh, episode uh, where we interviewed her, she contacted me and said, you you have to talk with Rory Kelly. Uh, she's just an amazing artist. And so we connected via email and made an arrangement and here we are today had a chance to listen to your music i'm so thankful you uh, sent your music that we could queue up and have some of this done it's very good music it's edgy i think people will like it thank you i hope so taryn's so great you know i only met her during this year we've met virtually not in person yet because covid but she's you know she's played some really big festivals she's done some really good things and she doesn't act like that. She's very down to earth. She's everyone's best friend. You know, I really love her personality. So what's been going on for you? What's happening now? You're working on a release, I understand. Yeah, so I've got uh, I've got shadow work. It just came out digitally and it hasn't yet. I'm in the weird in-between place where the CDs and vinyl aren't out to everyone yet, um, but people can pre-order. And it's out on Spotify and, um, you know, iTunes and all those all those places. It's called Shadow Work. Uh, I finished it up during quarantine and it was kind of divine timing. You know, yeah, I was right. working on the album already, but it's, it's called Shadow Work. It's about like facing your darkness, facing your inner demons. And well, we all did <laughs> in it's, 2020. It's, it's the person in the mirror, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, that's what it's about. You know, like we all have like layers and different facets of our personalities that maybe we'd rather the world not see. <laughs> and I just decided to dig deep. That was like where I was my inner world at the time. And I think that it was lucky that I got done and was ready to put it out right at the beginning of 2021 because everyone has been doing shadow work this last year accidentally. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way to frame it, shadow work. I've ne I haven't heard it referred to that way, but yeah, it kind of captures the moment, doesn't it, of what people are doing sort of in the dark spaces and recesses of their homes. How long did that take you to pull together shadow work? Oof, too long. <laughs> before, <laughs> so before, um, before like, covid and quarantine and everything i was gigging five or six nights a week you know i was full-time bar musician um which doesn't leave a lot of time for recording 
Plus, um, as you know, as someone running a podcast, we have a similar set of to-do lists of like, okay, we have to do the promotion, we have to do the production, we have to do, it's all us, you know, there's no handy team to do it for us. It just, <laughs> it just magically happens over here. I don't know what you're it's, doing wrong, but here. Oh, just... do you just have like a team of elves? Can I borrow <laughs> yeah. them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're spot on. It's a, uh, it, it's a, it's. It seems like an endless list when you start out after you've done enough of them, you know what you have to do and it, you get faster at it and more efficient. Yeah, it's, it's true. So I just feel like, uh, I have a hard time. I've had a hard time getting finished with things in the studio and I'm very, very grateful. I work with my dad. He's my recording partner. He's great. He's a world-class engineer, um, as well as a ridiculous player. And, um, it took us, you know, it took us a good, let's see, my last album came out in 2016. So been a bit, it's been five solid years since that release because we're slow. <laughs> when I was producing my own music, and I'm terrible at producing my own music, let me just say that at the outset. Yeah, it would take me forever to do music. When I produced other people, you know, there was some urgency there and things, things actually it's worked funny. out much better producing other people, so... I don't really produce myself too often anymore. Good for you. I can't. <laughs> Good for I, you, yeah. You haven't heard them. Wait a minute. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm speaking as a songwriter. Like, my ears, uh, I can't listen with the detail that my, that my father does. I lose my, I lose my, uh, my sense of, of freshness, you know? Right. So I am very, very grateful to have someone to work with as a producer because it's too much. <laughs> well, it's nice to have him as a resource. What is his background? So he, um, he's been a musician, like a, you know, working musician his whole adult life. He started recording in his dad's basement, uh, in Queens when he was, you know, like 20 and he actually recorded a demo for Blondie in that basement. In that and basement. Wow. In that. Yeah. And apparently like Debbie Harry and his dad made friends and like would hang out on the porch chatting, like in between takes. That's a great story. So, yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> Um, and he ended up, uh, you know, just keeping pushing himself as he loves recording. That's his thing. So he opened up a studio called The Workshop and did a ton of work for movies in the 80s, scored a couple of films, you know, and had like, you know, major label pro projects that he was called to work on pretty regularly. Then I came along and uh, he, I think, wanted a little bit of a more like stable day to day lifestyle. He started sure. teaching. Um, so he taught that you know sound engineering and recording for a bunch of years and now he's retired and he was retired for five minutes and yeah. uh and and like five minutes later he was like i'm bored i think i'll open a studio again <laughs> right right so what part of new york uh do you guys live in we live on long island long island yeah long island <laughs> yeah, long island Yes, it's just it's the the Long Island Expressway. You know, it's just like one long parking lot. It's uh, amazing, <laughs> and it's nice to stay home because of that. So, I have to say, I did a time audit once when I was uh, when I was working and gigging. You know, in bars almost every night, and I just I don't know, like some you know personal growth book told me to do this. Like, how do you spend each each hour of your day or whatever? And I found out that I spend more time on the LIE than I spent on stage. Well, yeah, so, that happens. Oops. <laughs> so um, what else is going on that has consumed your year? Well, 
Um, apart from recording and releasing this album, which is a lot, you know, I've been live streaming kind of nonstop. I had started a little bit before COVID happened. I would, uh, you know, like pop a phone up at my gig and, you know, like stream some music. And then that became the only way I could share music really quickly, you know, overnight, as I'm sure so many other people you've talked to have had that experience. And I have to say, like, I've gone all in. I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoy, um, I've, I just recently became an affiliate on Twitch. I'm like a little Twitch baby, but I'm learning. And it's been really special. I do a weekly live stream now called Monday Night Muses. It's every night um, and it's on my Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. So if you type in Rory Kelly on any of those websites, you will find me at 7 p.m. Eastern on a Monday night. I have an opener. I get to pre like uh, present another songwriter for an hour and then I play. And I play songs, I read some poetry, I do some live looping. It's very much like an artistic playground for me. <laughs> and you tried that driving test. So yeah. you concluded from that driving that you prefer to do streaming stuff rather than drive to gigs? Or would you like I to be live gigging again? You know, I have to admit, I love, I love streaming. I've fallen in love with it. And I'm an introvert and I love to stay at home. I know that I, I will enjoy, you know, like getting out there and getting to sing in person again is really exciting and really fun. But I have to say I'm a convert to the streaming thing. I, I just love that uh, I can sit down for an hour or whatever and turn on my computer and reach people from all over the world. You know, uh, like now I have to put my show times. You just did the Australia conversion and I usually do um, Greenwich Mean Time. Pacific time and Eastern time, because I actually have some people who tune in in, in Ireland for me. It's right. It starts right around Ireland. midnight in Ireland. Yeah. Ireland. Well, they're so, Greenwich mean time also. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I love streaming. I got to say it lets me, lets me connect in a way that I almost can't on stage. Um, it's cool too. It lets me do weird stuff. Like, well, I've been doing my streaming show. I started doing something called poetry corner where I do a little bit of live looping. I like put some cool weird MIDI sounds in. I do a little bit of vocal looping and a little bit of beatboxing and then I read poetry over it. And that's like really fun for me and people have enjoyed it. It started as a spur of the moment thing and now I do it every week because people ask me to and I don't feel like I could get paid to do that at a sports bar. <laughs> so now do you find that the financial side is helping to make up some costs that you're not able to recover now that you're not live gigging? Somewhat. People have been very generous, which is wonderful. A lot of artists started doing the virtual tip jar thing this year. Um, and people really want to support, you know, that's wonderful. Right. Uh, it's really, I, I haven't yet raised it to the point where it can replace gigging, you know, realistically yet, but I'm curious. I think I think that I can. I know there are people who do the full-time streaming thing, and I'm fascinated by it. I'm excited about kind of seeing what I could do with, to make that a career. So now, where do you get the best response right now? Do you get it from the Facebook part of it, the YouTube or the Twitch side? Well, um, Facebook is my big home base. I have a lot of Facebook followers. And so there's always people there, and I can kind of go live any time of day, and a couple of people at least will pop on to watch on Facebook. But Twitch is my is my close second. People are, are following close behind on Twitch. And I'm trying really hard to grow it because I'm excited about Twitch. It's a great community. I've been just kind of going down the rabbit hole every couple of days and seeing who's live at the moment and seeing who I can tune in for. I found a guy who does armor. Like he makes chain mail. 
live on Twitch. And apparently wow. there's going to be a Twitch Renaissance Fair in a couple of weeks. It's just, I'm like, I, I would never even think that was a thing. So it's just amazing what you can find people, you know, streaming and sharing. And I'm into it, you know. I'm like, wow, cool. <laughs> Twitch, not just for gamers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I know exactly. Well, you're exactly the second person I know that's on Twitch. The other person, I don't actually know him, but I followed him on YouTube. And he mentioned that he does these longer shows on Twitch. And yeah. he is on there doing a live performance. And he records them, by the way. Yeah. Like five it's nice to do to like have the replay. five hours. Yeah. And that's awesome. Five hours. Uh, but, you know, I have to say as someone who is like a, a full-time gigging musician or was before this pandemic, most of my gigs would last three or four hours, you know, at a bar or whatever. So to me to go play that long on Twitch, it's like, well, I didn't have to carry any equipment. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to drive on the LIE for an hour. I just get to spend the whole time playing music. That's not so bad. The small screen of YouTube or Twitch or Facebook, it's a streaming medium. So the attention spans are not very long, are they? It's true. It's, it's funny because I think there's a thing on Twitch where there's a chat, you know, and YouTube Live has a chat now too and Facebook Live has one. And half the thing is the chat, you know, like you go and have a performance and I find that I spend less time actually playing songs and more time catching up to people because you'll get regulars and be like, oh, Barbie, how are you? It's so good to see that you're in the chat, you know, and it's it's really interesting. I, I see like the big Twitch streamers and they'll spend a lot more time talking with their people who are in the chat. It's almost like a hangout, you know, yeah, right. And. I have to say I don't mind it. It's nice because it feels like it's socializing. You know, it's nice to be able to connect with people. But then I get back to a gig and I'm like, oh, I just got to play songs every minute now, don't I? <laughs> so now do you have a, uh, a Patreon account that people can participate I, in? I do. Thank you for asking. Yes. Uh, Patreon.com backslash Rory Kelly, uh, which is spelled R-O-R-I-E-K-E-L-L-Y. A lot of people, my name is tricky to spell. Yes, and I do, I'll do a, a monthly all-request live stream that is patrons only. That was a cooler benefit a year ago before everyone was live streaming all the time. But I also, I share like new versions of songs with them. I gave them all upgrades if they pre-ordered my album to get like a cooler, more deluxe version. I share, um, you know, early songs as I'm writing them and like little video vlogs and stuff like that of me behind the scenes in the studio. Like just try to give them a real window. And that's really cool. It's a really, really nice experience to be able to do that. You know, I often think when people ask me about Patreon, because I think people think like, oh, that's new, like this website subscription for music. People think it's a new thing. But in practice, I think it's a lot like fan clubs. You know, in the 80s and the 90s, you could join a band's fan club and you yep. could pay like a yearly membership and they'd send you like, um, you know, like buttons and patches and stuff like that. And they'd send you like a an actual in-person physical newsletter and stuff. Tell me, uh, Rory, do you have merchandise? I do have merchandise. That's something I spend a good amount of time on this year is uh, I have a, an online storefront now. It's called the Lady Beast Emporium. The Lady um, Beast Emporium. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of my there? branding. Shop.rorykelly.com. Okay. So I do have my music there, uh, physical and digital. And I have... You know, shirts, hoodies. I actually made some cute little Christmas pajamas during the holidays with dinosaurs wearing uh, snow hats. 
So yeah, if you wish to adorn your beautiful body in Rory Kelly merch, you can. Yes, <laughs> Rory Kelly designed. Indeed. So A lot I want to get. Are. I want to get to your first song called "Magic Coming." Tell us about that. Oh yeah, awesome. So I wrote this song before I quit my day job like a year or two before. And it was a goal. I had a five-year plan. I'm very organized. I'm that kind of person. And it was really in that slogging part of a goal where you're like, oh, am I ever going to hit the finish line? And I wrote it to encourage myself. You know, I really wrote it to remind myself like, hey, this is all going to pay off. You know, you're, you're pushing now and you're pushing hard and there is going to be a payoff and you're going to be free. You know, you're going to be able to do what you're meant to do. And True story, because I did quit my day job two years later. Um, but that's really what that was. It was an encouragement song about making your own luck, which is something I believe in very strongly. Well, this is a wonderful song. It's called Magic Coming. There are times when she knows that this life is not enough and all it does platitudes and the world can make it so working hard every day for the bills she still can't pay she rpgs late at night and it's someone else's life oh oh there's magic coming oh there's magic coming oh there's magic coming where you gonna be tonight oh there's magic coming It's another one of these But the wind blows strong now And she knows it's only time Just a matter of time Till she spreads her wings and flies Oh, oh, there's magic coming Oh, there's magic coming Oh, there's magic coming Where you gonna be tonight? Oh, there's magic coming It's not to fix, it's not to tame, oh, oh, 
magic coming. Oh, there's magic coming. Oh, there's magic coming. Magic coming. That's a great song. That has a beat and a, hits a groove. It Your music differentiates it from some of the other music that I've listened to in that um, it feels like it defines an East Coast kind of a vibe, a sound. Oh, interesting. Uh, oh, East Coast Rory. If, <laughs> if you listen to the other podcasts, which I encourage everyone to do at localopenmic.com, <laughs> uh, if you listen to the other ones, you will hear each region, whether it's Australia or New Zealand or Canada or even other parts of the States, the general sound is just different. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. They've all been good, by the way. Uh, this one, uh, it's it's definitely ready for uh, radio airplay, too. So it's got all Thank the hooks. Thank you. Yeah. And I hope DJs agree with you. <laughs> hope DJs agree. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> that like you mentioned that uh, you and Taryn are trying to get some of your music into the sync world. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a song that tells a story that you just have to find the right movie where that becomes its vehicle to be used as a theme song and you've got it. I mean... I would love to see like a cool, like witchy movie come out, you know, with that. Yeah, you know. Or maybe it's just a, you know, a rom-com. How much of that were you playing on? Uh, Let's see. I'm thinking about uh, my dad played the keys. There's a lot of there's a lot of keyboards on this album because I'm in love with the piano. And I've only recently gotten anywhere anywhere near competent as a keys player. (laughs) Sure. I play keys also and it can be a struggle. I, yeah, I'm a guitar player, um, you know, like that's my main instrument, sure. and uh, I've fallen in love with piano. I really spent a lot of time during the last year um, bringing up my chops, because, you know, if not in 2020, when? But, um, so the keys are my dad, the bass is my dad, the drums are this great drummer that we've worked with, uh, Katie Perlman, she's another local musician here on Long Island. Guitars are me, there's a couple guitars on there, all of the vocals are me. And then in the in the end in that breakdown that is me and my dad stomping on the floor with boots <laughs> and clapping our hands. Well, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So. It's sort of the uh, the poor man's uh, adding bass and reverberation and low end to stuff. Well, and we did a you know we did a lot of it, and I it was just like important to be like no let's like make the floor. I had seen uh, this really great band. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I was I worked as a stagehand at the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival a couple years ago, and there was this great Irish band, traditional Irish band, and they didn't have a percussionist. What they had was someone doing traditional like Irish tap step dancing, and they literally put her on the stage and mic'd the floor under her shoes, and she was the rhythm. Wow. It was so cool to watch. And so I had that in my head. I'm like, Dad, we have to just stomp on the floor. <laughs> Those Irish, they're so creative. I know, you know. It's when we're not drinking beer, we're writing a song. 
I mean, that really actually does define the Irish experience, I think. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite microphone you like to sing into? I do. I'm very spoiled because I grew up in uh, a group in a studio. So I, I, my dad's got a Neumann U67, and it's just the most gorgeous, glorious, warm mic in the whole world, and I love it. Um, so that's my, which is, you know, like to buy one of these things, vintage costs like as much as a car, you know? <laughs> so I'm very spoiled and lucky that I get to sing into this mic in the studio. Um, at home though, I use, uh, for my recording setup, uh, an Assure SM27 okay. and it's great for live streaming. It's a really nice condenser mic. Um, and it's really affordable. It's like, you can get them for a few hundred bucks. And so it's great. It it will mic a vocal as well as it will mic a guitar. Like both will sound pretty good. And we've learned through trial and error that it tends to capture my vocals pretty well. So that's what I'm doing when I'm like in the home studio. Okay, so um, I normally get to these kinds of questions later. What kind of guitar do you like playing? Ooh, so I have an Alvarez Yari. And I really like it. I haven't, uh, I don't think I've seen anybody have an Alvarez so far. So you're a first. I'm the first. I really, uh, I love this guitar. I've had it since I was 16 or 17. When I was at the point in my musicality that it was time to get like a good guitar, you know, instead of the one I had learned on. And my dad found it for me at uh, Sam Ash, I think. And said, Rory, there's this beautiful guitar and it's on sale and it's, uh, you know, being sold for less than it's worth and it's gorgeous and it's got a great tone. Here's the problem. It's purple. And I'm like, have you met me? That's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like got a purple, like violet dyed, like flame maple situation. Oh, how fun. People, you're going to have to go to her website to see that. It's, uh, It's a show all by itself. It, it's gorgeous, and uh, and I love the tone. I love Alvarez guitars. I find have like a little more bite to them than like a Taylor or um, you know a Martin. And nothing against Taylors and Martins; they're beautiful guitars. But I'm kind of an aggressive player. <laughs> I feel like I can get my aggression out with an Alvarez. <laughs> yeah, this Alvarez has been. Gee, let's see. I'm 36, so I guess it's almost exactly 20 years. Wow. Every gig has been this Alvarez, except like the rare occasion. It's out of commission or something, and I borrow a guitar. So you don't actually have any other guitars? Is that it? I have um, oh, I, I have a couple electric guitars. Um, I've got a, a 335, and I've got a Telecaster, which I love to get to play, but 90% of the time I'm playing solo and acoustic. It's just the Rory show. <laughs> I've got both of those. I have a Tele and a, I have an nice. Epiphone 335. Nice. Uh, yeah, so same, same vibe. The Epiphones sound great, you know? They're the same guitar. Yeah, you know, I I really feel that way. So, uh, and I have a, a black Telecaster. I also Ooh. have a Strat. So, you know, there you go. I kind of I feel like I, I don't know. I think just like I'm a '90s kid. I just OD'd on that clean Strat sound. I'm like, I don't need to hear a Strat again. I've hear I can hear it on every record. <laughs> so that's why that's why I was like, I want a Telecaster. That's a little more interesting to me. You know, they got that spanky sound. Right. You're right. Okay, so let's notch back a little from the from the last year or so. What went on that led up to all of this uh, for you musically? I I think you mentioned you played clubs a lot and yeah. all. How long have you been playing clubs? Um, quite a while. Let's see. Well, I started. I've been gigging since I was a teenager. Um, oh, okay. And for the for the first uh, 
bunch of years, I exclusively shared like my originals and I would share covers, but like kind of the stuff I like to listen to, which wasn't necessarily on the radio, you know, I'd do the open mic scene and then I, I would get gigs as an original artist. Um, but you know, kind of small time, local, local stuff. And at some point I realized that, um, I just wanted to be doing more music. I was working at a day job and all of that. And I was like, you know, if I could be, if I could be making music for a living, even if it's not the original stuff, I'd get to play my guitar for a bunch of hours every day. That's neat, you know? So I started doing like uh, weddings and, and gigs in bars and gigs in restaurants and stuff like that, you know, where you're playing like, you know, top 40 stuff, songs people know, classic rock. And that's been since, gosh, uh, seven or eight years now that I've been doing that. Who are your and, favorite uh, bands? Let's see. I love, I grew up on Ben Folds 5 when they were Ben Folds 5. Now it's just Ben Folds. Um, I love Tegan and Sarah. I just absolutely like love everything they do. And I'm a big Alanis head. You can tell like exactly how old I am by my references, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, she's a good Canadian gal. She is. She's so good. She just came out with an album yep, it, sure like did. last year. Um, and so did Fiona Apple, which was amazing and came out at just the right time. Uh, Alanis, um, yeah. if you're listening to this, I sent you an email to do an interview with you, okay? So Rory oh, really likes you. Yeah. You inspired her, and I want to interview you. Yes, I just it's thought really I'd true. send that out to the universe. Maybe she'll Hear listen. us, Alanis. <laughs> <laughs> send it into the Alanis ether. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Song length. I, wanna, I, met, I made a note about this. When you write songs... Knowing that we're kind of in a, um, a streaming world, do you write songs mm. that you try and be conscious of the length of the song? I'm more conscious of it than I used to be. I kind of like the era that I started performing original music in was like when a bunch of singer songwriters were like very big, you know, there was like Rufus Wainwright and, uh, yeah, and Alanis and Ben Folds and, you know, Regina Spector and all of that. And a lot of the people at my open mics were just writing like longer and longer songs there. My dad had a running joke about it that like you get to play three songs at the open mic, but if they're all six minutes, that's a 20 minute set, <laughs> you know? Um, and I was definitely, I definitely fell prey to that. And then at some point I was like, I don't know, maybe I could, maybe I could say it quicker. <laughs> Is there anything else about the music when you're writing that, when you're writing your music that you particularly pay attention to? that affects the outcome of the song and how you do it? Well, it's important to me these days, and I didn't always feel this way, um, but I, I've i studied, you know, like pop songs and songs that I love, you know, so not necessarily only pop songs. And uh, I really like the idea of, uh, I wanna be hooky. You know, I wanna have something that catches in your head. I'm no longer afraid of being repetitive, which I was when I was younger. I think a lot of songwriters go through this uh, experience where they start writing more complex stuff and and uh, and longer songs and and some of it's absolutely stunning and I'm not like hating on that, um, but I think there's something beautiful about a three minute pop song, you know. It, you know, it just it takes somebody really particularly gifted to write a wordy song that can go for a long time and hold your interest because yes. after a while. It's just fatiguing to try and keep up with everything they're trying to say. And yet mm -hmm. a song that's shorter, like your, like your last song, uh, 
uh, magic coming, you got that hook going, and that was great. You and know. that's my running joke, by the way, when I perform that live, I, I get everyone singing with me. And I'm like, here's the lyrics to the chorus. It's hard to remember. There's magic coming. That's it. <laughs> that's it. There's magic coming. I definitely feel like um, people don't do intros as much as they used to with songs. You know, that used to be a thing, a song to have like a long kind of groovy or jammy intro. And uh, I don't know, I hear my mother's voice in, the head, in my head saying, don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> you know, it's, nowadays, that's true, again, because, the, again, the streaming world, people just... It's true. I heard a song by a person that uh, I interviewed, and their intro was over a minute long. And wow. I played the whole song. It was a great song, by the way. But yeah. a, a whole minute devoted to this song that, you know, you could have done a four-bar turnaround on the intro and hit it. Yep. Yeah. The song would have been as meaningful, you know, not taking anything away from it. It was a great song, uh, just as it was. But it was not a song you'd typically find, I think, successful in a streaming world. I mean, I'm a victim of it, too. It's hard, it's hard too, because it's so easy for us to click away, you know, to be like, eh, this doesn't. I remember watching my sister listen to the radio and this was, I guess like that shows what generation I am, that it was the radio. Um, but she has a different personality around it. I'll give a song a chance. I'll be like, maybe this will get good. And she will like listen to 0.2 seconds. You know, she's like, don't like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. What's on the next station. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was amazing to me, but I think it's now it's even more so like, it's so easy to just skip ahead to the next thing. What were you doing before the gigging? You said you were working. How did that go? Uh, yeah, I, w I worked in tech. Um, I kind of accidentally had a tech career um, for a while. And um, I say accidentally because it really was, I, I never wanted a career other than music, you know. So I always kind of looked at whatever job I had to pay my rent, you know, as, right. well, a job I had to pay my rent, you know. Um, but I had to learn how to code because I needed a website because you need to have a website when you're a musician. So I like I taught myself how to code because I'm that person. I'm a nerd. I was like, I could do it. I and do it. I could do it. Why not? And I learned how to code. And a year of my life went by and I learned how to code very well, by the way, because I'm a detail oriented person, which I can tell you are, too. You know, I wasn't going to do it halfway. OK, what and languages do you code in? I only, I mean, I really only do, uh, you know, front end stuff. So I do HTML, I do CSS, I can fake my way through JavaScript and PHP, but I, I realized it was a marketable skill at some point. And I was doing what people call like pink color jobs. You know, I was like working as a secretary, like that kind of thing. I never heard I it called like, that, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh well, so you know what a blue collar job is, sure right? Do. You know, yeah. you think of like construction workers, the same type of thing is like, you know, just kind of uh, the typical job that a woman can get uh, kind of out of the gate, like, you know, going and working as a secretary or working as a hostess and that kind of thing, you know. So I was working those kind of jobs. And then I was like, oh, I bet I could make more money if I did a coding job. <laughs> so I just like tried. And the great thing about tech is um, I didn't go to school for it or anything, but no one cared because I knew my code. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, yep. I, yeah, I was able to get I was able to get work and because I was a conscientious person and good at what I did, I kind of kept like climbing a ladder. I was um, you know, running a team of coders at one point. And at that point, I'm going like 
what am I doing? <laughs> I don't want this career, you know, like I didn't, I didn't mind any of the people I worked with or anything. It wasn't anything like that. I was just like, what am I, what am I doing? This is not the way I want my life to go, you know? So did you do all the coding for your website? Um, I, I did until recently. And then this last year I did a redesign on WordPress because why not make it easy? Yeah. I right. did a lot of custom coding for it though. I did, uh, anyone who, anyone will tell you WordPress is not as turnkey as they think. Um, so definitely a lot of custom CSS. Whoops. You, you turned on my nerd speak. <laughs> why don't we get to another song? I have a song queued up called black and white. Why don't you tell us the backstory to that? So that one has uh, an interesting backstory. It's about the first dream I can remember having as a child, uh, which was a nightmare. And I think I can picture myself in the dream wearing a shirt that I know I owned as a seven-year-old. So that's where I place it at about seven years old. And in the dream, it was like very kind of spooky uh, Hitchcock-style dream where there was this evil cloud carousing through the neighborhood. And if the cloud touched you, you would turn black and white, like black and white, like an old TV, you know, like all of your color would drain out of you. And it wouldn't, it wasn't just that it would like, you know, drain your color, but it was like something vital about who you are, like your personality, like, like you wouldn't be a pod person, but you would be like a, a shadow of your former self, you know? And anyway, so I had this nightmare, this nightmare about this cloud and I'm like, um, you know, running home, you know, like to evade this cloud. And I like slide into my kitchen and close the door behind me. And my mom turns around and I'm like, mom, you won't believe it. And then I see that my mom has turned black and white. Like she's already been caught by the cloud. Wow. Yeah. Like such a, what a crazy cinematic movie dream, you know, uh, for a seven year old. Like, I don't know what my problem was. <laughs> and so now all these years later, you wrote a song about that experience. Yeah, it, it kind of, I was thinking about it. I, I don't remember what made me think about it, but I know I was taking a shower in a tiny apartment that my husband and I shared uh, before we bought our house. And I'm in the shower and thinking about that cloud, you know, turning my mom black and white. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you sing in the shower. I just like was like, ah, you know, like I just started, started singing. And lo and behold, it became a song. Okay. Well, let's get to it. It's called black and white. In my mind, who am I if 
Wow, black and white. And that's about your dream, huh? Yeah. Good song. It's funny. Thank you. Good song. So how much do you contribute in the production part of making your songs? Well, my I, dad is the is the brains for sure. He's okay. got <laughs> you know, he's got those years of experience as an engineer, um, which I'm kind of learning some of that stuff. Um, but creatively we're really partners, you know, so we both have ideas, we both bring them to the table. Occasionally one of us will be like, That's terrible. <laughs> but, you know, um so the so the structure of the song is done, you know, when I come in and I'll kind of have an idea of like, oh, I want, you know, I want this to be played on piano, not keyboard or whatever. I said that a lot, this album, because I was like in love with piano. Um, and a lot of it just kind of organically, we kind of uh, both have our have our ears on it. And we're adding one thing at a time and and presenting different ideas to each other and kind of fooling around together. So it's really wonderful. It's not a fast way to make an album, but it feels really fun for us. Well, the uh, the final product is wonderful. So the I wanted to ask you about the background vocals. Is that you singing background vocals on this also? That's me, yeah. Every, uh, every vocal on this album is mine, actually. Uh, this was mostly me and my dad wanted to see what we could do as two humans in a studio. So, so that it, was really it sounded like, though, that there were multiple voices in the background, like a, yes. a group of, uh, they're female voices, obviously. So it was, you know, a group of gals singing in the background. That's all you. It's all me. It's the chorus of a thousand Rory's. <laughs> <clears throat> so did you, um, did you have, did you take your voice and just sing it multiple times to get that, yep. that really nuanced separation between the singing? Yeah, so it's uh, usually uh, with most of this album and most of what we do, there's at least like a three-part harmony. Sometimes we'll sneak on like a random weird fourth part in there. Sometimes we double it. Uh, sometimes we like the double track sound, you know. And usually, um, often we'll do a different mic for the background vocals versus for the lead. I can't remember what mic we used for the lead on this. Um, but we have like a few in rotation. We have that gorgeous Neumann. Uh, we have the SM, uh, 27, which is a, you know, like really cheap, but really nice mic. And, uh, there was a blue mic we were using a couple on a couple of these tracks too. So we kind of like, okay, this will give it a little bit of a different feel. We'll put it on a different mic. Obviously we did like some different effects and stuff like that, you know, on the various vocals. Okay. But yeah. Wonderful. So, um, let me ask you, I, uh, what was your childhood like? Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you've mentioned that, you know, your dad, you know, met Blondie and did a <laughs> demo and all that, but, um, surely your childhood wasn't literally in the studio all the time, hanging out with dad, I'm guessing. Not constantly. Although I was there a lot. I grew up in that studio. Um, and I remember, so this was back in the days when everything was not digital. I remember my dad getting really mad at me one time when I went, he had like a huge, uh, like 24 track, you know, mixing board. And, uh, I spent a good 10 minutes one day arranging all the faders into like a pretty wave pattern on the mixing board. <laughs> and I was pleased with myself. I'm like, look how nice I made your mixing board dad. And he like, he had like painstakingly made a mix the night before <laughs> and he's like, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> that is 
That is absolutely what a little kid would do. Oh, a hundred percent right. And I'm just yeah. like a little I don't I don't remember how old I was, but I'm a little girl and I'm like, look dad, I made it pretty. <laughs> I had a studio in my house one time and my daughter uh, she used to come in and just hang out while I'd be playing music. She'd play with her mm-hmm. toys, you know, it wasn't to get in my way. But every now and again, she'd get up and she'd start moving dials around just like that. It, you know, in my case, uh, I didn't have, you know, a uh, uh, 24-track tape system. I mean, I was small. But, um, yeah, it was kind of kind of interesting to hear you say that because that's exactly what my daughter would do. And she's about your age, too, so... Nice. Uh, you know, there you have it. So yeah. then, okay, so you hung out some in your dad's studio, but, you know, you do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a sister, a little sister. Her name is Neva. She's a great human. She's got uh, two smaller humans now. No, three. She just had another baby this year. So I've got uh, two nephews and a niece. It's great. It's wonderful being an aunt because I get to, like, hang out with the kids and, and fill them up with sugar and then give them back. There you go. Yep. <laughs> yep. That happens a lot these days. Yeah. Um, and both my parents were musicians. So they met at, at gigs. Um, they met literally on the break. They were both taking breaks at bars next door to each other. <laughs> so they met, you know, like in the, in the, on the sidewalk outside their respective gigs one night. So uh, that was like, you know really a part of my childhood my parents had uh you know like my mom would be gigging and performing uh my dad would be working in the studio my mom was the one who taught me how to tune a guitar for the first time and um yeah music was a really big part of our lives you know even we were doing our normal things um we'd have like hangouts where we sang and harmonized with each other and sang like Beatles songs you know so was she a singer or a musician what did she do um, she was both, uh, she was a, uh, vocalist and, and fronted like a big band, like a, you know, a club date band for a bunch of years. Um, she was a really, really legit guitar player. Um, really good, like kind of voice leading jazz chords kind of guitar player. Um, another Carol Kay, <laughs> you know, well, Carol Kay, my dad like has so much respect for as a bass player. Right. Um, she was but, totally jazz back in the. She started out, yeah. And, yeah. And my mom was, uh, she was a songwriter, too. So she she was very influenced by, um, you know, like, uh, Motown and pop. And, you know, like, she she wrote these really cool, like, kind of R&B Motown grooves. And uh, it's just great. It's beautiful that I still get to listen to them, you know, like, because now she doesn't really, uh, you know, she doesn't really make music anymore too much. So it's just like a wonderful piece of legacy to have, you know. Have you ever thought of doing some of your parents' music only with a fresh eye? Yeah, I think it would be really fun. Actually, my dad and I have been talking about, um, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this. My dad has written, like, he's not someone who, like, songs pour out of him, but he's a songwriter. He's, you know, written more than a few songs. And he's been saying that he'd love to do a project together uh, with some of the songs he's written, you know? And I think that'd be so cool. I love the idea of us collaborating on something of his because it's always the other way around so far in my life, you know? Did so, yeah. uh, did any of their work get on uh, radio? Um, you know, I don't think so. Um, my dad, obviously, like, stuff he's recorded on, he's had, you know, like, really, uh, you know, really big, you know, big names that he's recorded. 
but uh, not as songwriters. They, you know, except for like ad jingles. For a while, they were doing ad jingles, and so that got on the radio. <laughs> well, you know, at least they can say they've been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's just the music industry. It's funny. There's always a DIY side to the music industry. You know what I mean? And they were very much in that world um, where people would know who they were at that time, you know, and, um, you know, never made a record. It wasn't the time when an independent artist, although my mom had a record's worth of material that I have sitting on my hard drive, wasn't a time that an independent artist would self-release a CD or self-release a record or a tape or whatever, you know? Oh, exactly. I... I know. In fact, um, really when Roland came out with the VS-880 is when the digital world really started to take off. Mm -hmm. um, and musicians were empowered to do very credible, highly credible works right from their living room. You yeah. know, get a decent mic and you've got a digital recorder with effects. You know, you're ready to go. So... So let's talk about busking. Have you done any busking besides the online type? I have done some busking. I have to say, I, I, I've done it, and it's not my absolute favorite to do, although I do cover gigs now, and that's not unlike busking. You not know? unlike it, no, except you're not outdoors. <laughs> yes. I did, uh, you know, I, I lived in Brooklyn for a bunch of years. I did my share of, uh, you know, singing in the subway or singing in the park. And, uh, you know, throwing out the guitar case or whatever for tips. And uh, there's things I really love about it. And uh, it did feel, which I guess my, my bar gig started to feel this way too. Like people wanted to hear certain songs and really didn't care about anything else <laughs> you might want to share. Um, and that's fine. You know, I love, I like entertaining people. It's, it's joyful to me, but I don't think it's like who I am as a musician. I think I, I feel like I have more to share as a songwriter. And so that's like a little bit why I'm so excited about live streaming because I can share my originals and there's a space for that, you know? Sure. Sure. So, uh, I tell you what, um, there's, I want to get at least through a couple more songs. Great. There's a song I have queued up called this girl. Tell us about it. Yeah. So I wrote this song on the way to a gig. Um, I was just discovering uh, my loop pedal. Um, I have a Boss RC30 looper that I absolutely love. And uh, so I was just at the place where I was building my skills to the point where I could lay down some chords. I could uh, beatbox a little rhythm on a second microphone and sing over it. Um, and that was a big revelation to me to free myself from having to accompany myself constantly on every song, you know? And so I was like writing, singing, writing this in the car on the way to a gig, um, about like my day, you know, like about my like frustrating experiences of the day or the week or whatever. And I got to the gig and it was an original gig. So it was, I was free to play a little bit. And, uh, I got up on stage and I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> Let's see, you know, but I, but this song has been in my head all day and I laid down some chords and laid down some beatboxing and I just found the video, like someone posted it on Facebook. It was like, uh, two years ago that I did this. Someone posted the video on Facebook and I'm like, that's the first time that song ever got performed. That's so cool. Um, so yeah, that was very much written on the fly. And then 
evolved as I performed it. Uh, you probably know this as a songwriter. You know, you write a song and you think it's done and then you play it a couple times and you find yourself going, I'd rather play this chord in the bridge or whatever. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's get to the song. It's called This Girl. Sounds great. Sorry, but the schedule's full right now. Sorry, but we found somebody else. Sorry, but we can't afford to pay you tonight. Sorry, it to cancel. I hope it's all right. I'm so far from all right. I come out the other side. This girl won't back down, won't back down. This songs that are just hooky and oh, repetitive in a good way yeah it's easy to catch the vibe of that song well done good job thank you i uh i remember doing that in the studio with my dad and it was like both it played to our strengths you know i'm a i'm a good vocal arranger and that's like uh something i love to do and he had these really cool just like that groove you know 
bum, 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 bum. That's all him. It's so cool. So did have you helped other people arrange their vocals for their music? Is that something, since you're good at it, that you've done? Um, I haven't, but it would be really fun to do. Hey, guys, if you need vocal arrangements. <laughs> I'm making notes here. <laughs> <laughs> no it's a cool idea i mean obviously i've been in i've sung in groups or whatever or uh you know sung back up for uh, for friends so i've kind of often like created or been a part of creating those arrangements for live performances you know but um yeah i don't know it's just a, i'm a nerd about it it's a passion of mine you know i loved i sang in a chorus in high school you know and that was like so cool well that song many voices. musically had a, a different vibe than the other two it was I don't want to say it was totally a different style, but it, it kind of felt like it was channeling into something different than, than the other two songs. So it was good. I, yeah. Uh, good song to have on the same album as the others. Now, you mentioned Thank you. Uh, with uh, Shadow Work that you were going to release vinyl also. Yeah. Tell us about that. Why did you choose to do some vinyl? Well, um, I've had a couple people like I've this is my third studio album. I've had a couple people like since the first since the beginning going like you should put out vinyl, um, you know, because vinyl people are diehard, <laughs> you they know, um, and at every time I've been like, I can't afford to do a vinyl run like I'm an indie artist, you know, I'm a DIY person, but it's gotten more affordable, you know, and I've and more people have gotten into vinyl in the last five years, you know. Now, it's interesting, depending on the age bracket, like there are people who are more likely to have a record player in their house than a CD player, you know, for the first time in a long time. And uh, so enough of my friends were interested in vinyl. I did a crowdfunding thing. I was like, okay, I'll do vinyl. If enough people buy it, vinyl will happen. And it did, you know. So now I have to, you know, now I'm in the process of manufacturing and getting them out to people, which takes a long time. But I'm excited about it. I'm psyched about it. CD players have gone the way of cassette players. They're, yeah. You know, unless you have one in a car, you almost don't want to have one around the house. They're people collecting don't, dust. Yeah. If, if people have a, a stereo, like it, people, a lot of people listen to digital music. There is a format change that's taken place, you know. So a lot of audiophiles are psyched about vinyl, you know, if they're going to have a physical version. And uh, that's where we're at, you know. Although I do have, uh, I'm making a CD version of this too. A lot of people did buy the CD. So um, you still really, people do buy CDs. There's a there's an idea that no one buys them anymore, but um, there are still people who love to listen to music on CD. Well, I know, like I said, people still have them in their cars. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, they have them on the computer still a lot. Um, yep. You know, not all the laptops people buy now have, have that built into it, but desktops all have them still yep yeah and and cds is it's kind of nice to hold it you gotta you know the mm -hmm. liner notes and maybe some extra pictures and stuff in there that an artist can throw in uh, and let's yeah. face it everybody's gonna rip it to an mp3 anyway at some point so they can put it on their phone and, it's true uh, yeah you know, it's just i mean i've got the single biggest area that consumes space on my phone is not pictures, and I'm prolific at taking pictures. It is the music. Yep. Just I have more music on there, and I'm not continuously listening, but when the mood hits, I've got a selection I go through, and if I don't have that selection, I'm really annoyed. So I yeah. put stuff on there. 
Uh, yeah. And you probably go home and put it on there that night, you know? Exactly. What advice would you give to a younger version of Rory getting into the music business? What would you have done differently? Um, I, a big, a big piece of advice I would just tell her is trust yourself more. A, a lot of my challenge over the last, uh, you know, however, however many years I've been trying to do this has been kind of unlearning the negative beliefs people have about being a musician, you know, that like, you can't, you can't make money as a musician. You definitely can't make money as an original musician. If you're going to make money, it's going to be really hard, you know? Um, and it's funny, I had two parents who made music for a living and I still have those beliefs ingrained in my head. Yeah. You that's know? kind of interesting that, uh, with two parents that were good examples of, I, I'm guessing earned yeah. a pretty good living, right? As, uh, yeah. I mean, I had business. like the, Typical, like, suburban upbringing. Yeah. I, I definitely was, you House know, cars, like... cars, you know, yeah, clothes exactly. that weren't from, you know, a thrift store or something. And... Yeah. But to still have some of that old programming installed in you to have to get rid of is, is kind of interesting uh, how that and works. And I think, I think there were sides of the business, too, that my parents wanted to shelter me from, you know, um, and I understand that, you know, and I think certainly my mom, as someone who went out and played the gigs that I play, um, you know, uh, getting, uh, getting men who would be really inappropriate at, you know, at bars and stuff like that, feeling a little bit unsafe, uh, those kind of things. I, I think she really didn't want for me, which I understand, you know, now <laughs> I think it's, it wasn't just my parents, but it was in the nineties was when I went to high school and it was really, that was a time and I guess a little bit is still like this, where it's like, if you don't go to college uh, for something real, you're not going to have a career and you're going to be working at McDonald's. Like that's, that's literally what I got told, you know, uh, I, I had teachers who would say practicing, would you like fries with that? Um, and it was it, really hard not to have that sink in like, oh, I guess this, I guess this isn't real. You know, I guess I have to do something real. <laughs> so I'd spent a lot of time having to unlearn that. And learning how to approach music, I think, more as an entrepreneur, you know, as like, this is my business. I'm a business owner, so I have to learn how to make it profitable. That's when it started working for me, when I started just honestly looking at the numbers. One of the things that's really tough, it sounds like you figured it out, but a lot of, even a lot of the people I interview don't have it figured out, is the business side, because it's really difficult to monetize and put value on your art. It's hard, I think, for an artist because a lot of us feel like, oh, I'm making art anyway. I should just give it to you, you know? Right. Yeah. They don't see the value in it. Yeah. Even though uh, it's funny because it's like most musicians and artists I know, the amount of labor and care that goes into their creation, you know, they're craftspeople. You know, if you were going to buy, uh, I don't know, like a, a beautiful piece of jewelry or a beautiful guitar made by, you know, a craftsperson, you would expect to pay top dollar for it because it was handmade and made so carefully, you know? Um, and yet people don't have the same, the same kind of attitude around the arts necessarily, even though it really, that's what it is. You know, you're a craftsperson and people dedicate their lives, life work to it. And they don't think about the money. They just think about getting it right because that's, what's important. It's their craft. So yeah, it is. It's a mindset shift. I think a lot of artists have the idea of like, I don't want to do the business. I'm just an artist. So what and would I you understand. recommend to somebody on the business side that would be um, objective number one to do to mm -hmm. approach their music from a business point of view, to take off the artist's hat for a moment yeah, and to put on that 
sort of marketing accountant all the other hats all the yeah all the other hats exactly (laughs) there's actually like five of them (laughs) um you know i think the first thing i would do is recommend that they stop taking one size fits all advice and ask themselves what they really want their career to look like i think in i certainly felt prey to this um there are a lot of music business blogs and podcasts and uh you know books or whatever coming out telling artists this is what you have to do this is what you got to do you got to be on spotify this is what you got to do you got to be live streaming this is what you have to do you have to brand yourself you know all of these different things and um a lot of this a lot of this advice you know you have to go on tour you have to be suiting for blogs all this stuff well it really depends on what your goals are you know um i know musicians like what is your definition of success I know musicians whose definition of success is I want to be signed to a major label, although I know fewer of them than I knew 10 years ago because major labels aren't, they don't represent a music career anymore, in my opinion, you know, no, um, and don't. you can, you can have a DIY career now more than you could maybe, you know, 20 years ago. Um, well, the fact is, people... is with, with music companies now, it started in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It's only uh, increased is that, before they want to sign you, they they want you to have a body of work that already is proven so they know out of the gate when they take control of it by contract that mm-hmm. they can make money. Yes. It's no longer the gamble where they're going to, they see a upstart band and, you know, the A&R guy hears it and goes, hey, we can make a fortune off these guys. Let's sign them. No. Yeah. If you don't have, and in addition to that, they want you to have a social media following to bring with you. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's another thing. I Yeah, it's, um, you know, you kind of don't, uh, you don't get signed until you don't need to get signed is, is what I think kind of the adage is. And, uh, and I question the value in being signed, you know, at this point. Unle- Again, there are people who really just like, they want the major label experience and all of that, which I think is rarer and rarer, you know, more and more of a 1% kind of thing as labels get more and more cautious with who they put money and effort behind. Um, But what if your vision of success is, well, I want to play every weekend. I don't actually want to quit my day job. Well, then you should be doing different things, right? What if your vision of success is, I want to tour full time because I just love it, which for a long time was my vision of success. What if your vision of success is, I don't really want to tour. I'm a homebody, but I want to record and I want to put out great sounding albums. And all of those like you can find a way to make the career you want function and make it monetizable, but you can't do it when you're trying to do 1500 things on a to-do list. You know, you spread yourself too thin. So, do so you, I think do you people find need that, to focus. Yeah, right. Uh, do you find you make um, a measurable amount of money from streaming or do you have to sell your product <laughs> to, to make the better money? Streaming is... Uh, for most artists at my level is a pretend form of income. Like I get, I get the, you know, like I get a check or whatever from CD or now it's a PayPal deposit from CD baby. And it's, it's pretend, you know, it's, um, Modest. you have to be, you have to be so, um, you have to have so many streams. Again, it's that kind of thing where if you're so big that you're making a significant amount of money streaming, you're probably already doing very well for yourself <laughs> in other ways. I look at it as one of one way to monetize, you know, um, and maybe if that's your, if that's your goal, if you're maybe the right genre or you just want to put out recordings and want to get a lot of streams. And if you're focusing on that, probably you could find a way to 
figure out how to do that and how to make that livable. But I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of other options for an artist. Uh, live streaming, if you can, if you can have a performing act, you know, live streaming is a model that uh, every night you play the same songs. And this is true of gigging and why gigging is always something that uh, record labels want a piece of, you know, you play the same songs, but they're new to the people you're performing for or the people who you're performing for keep coming back. Um, you know, and they're giving you tip money, maybe they're giving you subscription money, maybe, it, you know, like there's a service like Patreon or something. Um, that's really meaningful as a musician because that can be repeatable, you know? Do you sell merchandise? Do you have things other than CDs and things? Yeah, I have, uh, you know, um, t-shirts and, uh, you know, and things like that. Um, and I highly recommend for indie artists to check out the print on demand world because you no longer have to go and, you know, order several hundred t-shirts right. in order you don't to sell need them. The inventory stuff. Yeah. It's, it's use? so much easier. Um, I use Shopify. I have a Shopify shop and I work with a company that, uh, works exclusively through Shopify called Spod, Speedy Print On Demand. And I really like them. Uh, they have a lot of different like products and I obviously like ordered a bunch of, you know, tests, uh, you know, to make sure that it was good quality. It, it's good quality. It, it comes quickly, you know, and they do a good job. So that's pretty cool. So what all things, do you just sell shirts? Do you sell mugs, hats, everything? I have a, I have a lot of shirts. I have like t-shirts and hoodies, I think are my biggest thing. Although hoodies, I'm interested yeah. in like mugs and hats. I kind of did a survey actually. I was like, what would you like to see, you know, in my shop? Uh, you know, shirts and hoodies were the biggies. A couple of people said socks, which is interesting. It's hard to find someone who does print on demand socks, but I'm still looking. <laughs> you have to get and that did, out of China. It, right, that's the thing too. I maybe put more research into this than most people because I did not want to be supporting sweatshop brands. You know, I, I spent a lot of time making sure that the whatever the wholesale original like garments that I'm working with are like not not made in China, you know, by by starving children. <laughs> you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I do my research or at least I spent like a lot of time, you know, doing my research to make sure I was choosing things that felt um, ethical, I guess, you know. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's get to a final song. Um, yeah. I've decided I want to hear Lying Streak. Tell us about that. Awesome. So uh, Lying Streak is about being an invisible minority. Um, this is, uh, I, I wrote it, again, another song I wrote after the fact. This is kind of like what shadow work is. You delve into your past a little bit. Um, I wrote it a few years ago, reflecting on what it was like um, to be growing up and coming to terms with being bisexual in the nineties. And a friend and I were talking about this. Um, it was such a different climate in the nineties than it is today. You know, it was so different for a kid to come out in the nineties and, uh, so, felt so much scarier than it does today. And at the time in the nineties, it was still, it felt so different and so much better than like the seventies or the eighties, you know? So there has been progress. Um, but that's what that song is about. It's about, what goes through what went through my head as a teenage girl coming to terms with who she was in a world that didn't feel all that friendly to it, you know? Okay. Um, and, uh, so the, the chorus, I'm on a lying streak. This is about how it's very hard. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to come out. It's hard for people to know what your sexuality is unless you kind of 
lead with it. You're like, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Rory and I'm bisexual, which you don't usually start a conversation that way. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who does that really? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, and the trouble is that if you are anything other than straight, it just gets missed. That's why we have the phrase invisible minority. People tend to assume you're straight. So they assume you have a boyfriend or assume you have a husband or assume, you know, any number of things. And it can get to feel like you're wearing a mask. You know, it gets to feel like it felt to me like I was lying because if people would say it and I didn't correct them, I, I would feel like, oh, I, you know, now they think something about me that's not true, you know, and it was painful to me as a teenager, especially you want to be accepted for who you are. So that's really what that song is about. And I hope that other people hear it and hear their experience. And, you know, sometimes when you've gone through the same thing, hearing a song about it can be healing. Well, we'll uh, we'll find out. Let's play Lying Streak. I try to put my heart in it, but I just end up feeling stupid. Think that I was meant to be a weird old cat lady. I try to let go and just be myself. If anyone ever found that helpful, I don't even know who the real me is these days. I'm Until I am smart enough, brave enough to go it alone. 
Good song. Good song. That has uh, that has actually a broad message that that isn't strictly centric, I think, uh, about sexuality. It's about uh, generally who people are and what they want to be and being afraid to show it. Like, Yeah, you know, I think everyone's had that experience. Like a musician that has been told all their lives, well, you can't earn a living at it. You've experienced uh, some of that. I, it's That's a common theme, by the way, with people I've interviewed. Oh, I bet. And... And then sort of being in the closet about this is what I'm going to do. And yeah. finally, when when they break out, it's the same thing. They were on a lying streak all the way up to that point. It feels scary. Yeah, yeah it feels like, it oh, now I have to do the big reveal. And they never meant to be lying. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And um, I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I like the song. I mean, that's why I wanted to play it. And, and all. of course, I didn't know the backstory. Okay. And yeah. I still, we still would have played it, by the way. Um, I like the song, and it's a, yeah, good message. Good message. Yeah. It, and it's a timely one, too, for people to be genuine and not not uh, hide who they are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want relationships to struggle because somebody will say, you know, well, you don't love me. Well, you never showed me who you really were, mm-hmm. you know. And this sort of goes to that also. It's like, you know, be genuine, be who you are, come out, stop the lying streak, you know, but yeah. It's hard, it's hard to be yourself, you know. Um, it can be scary, I think, for people to be, you know, to really reveal themselves. And uh, I don't know, I hope it builds some compassion too. You know, it's nice to hear you say like, oh, I think a lot of people have been through this and I've been through this as a musician and I hope that what it does is it builds some compassion to, you know, people who maybe aren't in the LGBT community going, hey, this is what it's like. This is what it feels like. Yeah. It's nice when we get to yeah, see each other as humans. There is know? definitely a way to find some common understanding uh, by experiences mm-hmm. that aren't uniquely, you know, LGBTQ. Do I have them all? QIA usually is what we're saying now. LGBTQIA. Okay. Okay, that's new on me. I, You know, it's... Uh, I got to keep up with this better, but okay. It's, it's an effort. We call it the alphabet soup, uh, it it, is. but it's, it's just, it's an effort to be inclusive. Um, so we have lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual. And um, it's, a, it's important to get that representation because uh, it's a community of people who have been outcast. So we want to be inclusive. And I, I like that about it, you know? Okay. I've now learned something I didn't know yeah. before. See, here I am. And that's here what we're about on Local Open Mic, learning things we don't know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I know the fans are really going to love, they loved this music if they've made it this far, and they're going to become fans of yours. So again, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful conversation. It really means the world to me. And that concludes our interview with Rory Kelly. Be sure to go to her website, rorykelly.com. That's R-O-R-I-E, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, all one word, rorykelly.com. And you can find where shadow work is going to be available. Check her out on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch if you are a Twitcher. You'll surely have a good time watching Monday Night Muses. 
You're listening to Local Open Mic, the podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath, and remember, get on the stage, step up to that microphone, the world is listening.